0: Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you that you have not left us in the dark, but you have clearly spoken to us. And you've told us who you are and who we are in the scriptures and what is required of us and how we may come to you and have access to you through Jesus Christ. And as we come now, as your people seeking to hear what you have to say to us, as we open up your word, we pray that you would come by your spirit and that you would... Unstop our ears, that you would clear our vision, that we might be able to hear you and to see you, and that you might remove any distractions in our hearts, that we might receive your word and your truth to us this morning, that you would transform us by it and grow us in your grace. I pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, we are continuing in our studies in Ephesians, and this morning we're in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. You can actually find that in your pew Bibles on page 976 and 977. Just let me take a personal word of thank you uh, to this church for your hospitality over the last five or six weeks, and your support of us in prayer. My wife, Christy, our child, Olivia, and our soon-to-be child, Eliza, as we seek to Uh, Plant a Church in Asheville, thank you for your partnership uh, in that. We look forward to the coming weeks and years ahead when we're partnered together uh, in the work in Asheville, so thank you for that. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Let me read that for us. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Of hostility, by abolishing the law and commandments and ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. I have to say here just at the beginning that this is not primarily or at its core a comforting passage. This passage at its core is actually a confrontational passage. Because what Paul is really doing is laying down the gauntlet in front of us. He's challenging us. And he's challenging us if you just take a cursory look at this passage by making certain claims about the church, about what the church should be. And about how we should act in the church. Yes, he gives us a spiritual biography of what we once were. But what he's doing there is pointing us to think about how that changes our lives. Not just individually, but as a church. So I want us to see three claims that Paul, and not just Paul really, but the whole Bible is making. And he's saying three things to us. Making three claims on our lives. The first one is this, and it seems almost ridiculous to say you need the church that's the first claim that Paul is making here you need the church the second claim that Paul is making here is not only do you need the church but you also need to participate in the church and then the third claim he's making here is if you do come into the the church you need to lay down the hostility Those three claims, Paul's laying it down before us. So that first claim he's making, you need the church. Again, this may seem like an almost ridiculous statement to some of you, a kind of obvious, blatant, no-brainer kind of statement, but let me share with you why I think we need to hear this. I ran across a poll, I think it was in the New York Times, at least it was being reported in the New York Times, and it's probably uh, at least 8 to 10 years old at this point, but I think it still rings true today. One of the questions in that poll was, do you believe you can be a good Christian or a good Jew without going to church or to synagogue? Very simple question. Do you believe you can be a good Christian or a good Jew without going to church or synagogue? Would you believe that 81% of Americans polled answered That question, yes. 81% of Americans, the general public, believe that that can be done. That's where we are. And my suspicion is that number has actually grown beyond 81%. But it's not just expert opinion or scientific surveys that tell us this. If you, if you just look around, your own common sense will, will lead you to this conclusion. Really, that there are two things going on spiritually with most people in our culture today. On the one hand, there's an increase, an enormous increase in spiritual appetite among people today. I don't know if you see that here in Hendersonville. I see that all over the place in Asheville. There is a huge appetite for spiritual things. There's more interest in faith, there's more interest in the soul, there's more interest in spirituality than there has been amongst Americans on the whole in years. But there's something else that's going on too, and I think it's completely linked to that first thing. At the same time, there's a movement away from religion, especially institutional religion. There's a hunger for spirituality, but not for the church, not for religion. The claim is we want to do it on our own. And by ourselves now what does that mean that means that most people actually by the numbers that even those who claim to be Christians who align themselves as Christians don't see the necessity of the church so what Paul is saying here flies right in the face of what most Americans including many Christians believe about the church and their own spirituality. And what Paul is telling us is that you need the church. It's not an option for Christians. It's not somehow icing on the cake. Paul is saying you desperately need it. It's a necessity. If you look down actually at verse 11, at the beginning of our passage, you see a word there, therefore. And whenever you see therefore, you might have heard this before, you should always ask, what is the therefore there for? Because therefore always links what is coming with what has already taken place before. And it's important if you're ever going to understand a passage or a text to actually understand the context. And what we see here is that this passage on the church is intimately connected to what Paul has said before. And here's what's gone before. Here's what Paul has said. At the end of chapter 1, Paul offers a tremendous prayer. You can see it there for his Christian friends. He says, I pray that their eyes would be enlightened and that they would see the surpassing greatness of the power of God in us. The surpassing greatness of the power of God in us. But then when he gets to chapter 2, he's not somehow changing the subject. He's, not, he's, he's going right on into chapter 2 and showing the way God's power shows through in our lives. In verses 1 through 10, which Matt covered last week, we saw how God's power comes into us internally and individually. That's what the first half of chapter 2 is about, how God and his power comes into us individually and internally. And now in verse 11, Paul is saying how God's power in a different kind of way, but equally as powerful, how God takes different people, dissimilar people, diverse people, and brings them together into one body, into one group, into the church And he puts those two things together, how God comes into your life individually and internally and how God comes into your life corporately and relationally. That's actually the first reason for why you need the church. You need the church because God not only seeks to work in your life individually and internally, but corporately and relationally. God's power to change you works through his church. And you actually, all you have to do is just look down here, verses 1 through 10, and you can see all this talk about how God's power can come into your life. Paul says it can put life where there's deadness and wholeness where there's brokenness, vitality where there's emptiness, and it could come in and really change your life. Now, most people I know, no matter... What you think of Jesus Christ, whether you've put your faith and trust in him or you're not really sure about what you think about Jesus and the Bible and who this God is and all of that sort of thing. Most people will say, Listen, I, I, I love that. Right? I could listen to that all day. The power of God coming into my life, uh, bringing where there's brokenness and deadness, emptiness and loneliness. He, I, I love hearing that He can bring life and vitality and wholeness. That's what I'm after. I can really get into that. That's what most people will say. Preach that all day. God coming into me and changing me, bringing wholeness where there's brokenness, vitality where there's dead. I love that. That is, that is, that's incredible. I want to hear that all the time. But then in verses 11 through 22, Paul says, not only can the power of God change you individually, but the power of God can bring you into a church. And then the answer Comes back, and no thanks. Not really particularly interested in that. I like the idea of God changing me internally and individually, but being part of a whole group of people that are kind of messy and kind of have a bad reputation in the media, I'm not sure that's really for me. But you see, Paul brings these two things together. He talks about the surpassing power of God, and he immediately talks about God the church here's what's Paul here's what Paul's saying you want the power of God you want the power of God in your life therefore church you want the power of God therefore church look I'm not saying that you cannot be saved without the church that's not what I'm saying I don't believe that I'm not saying that but that's not really the question is it here's the question Can the surpassing power of God come into your life and flow through your life if you're not willing to become deeply grafted into a community of love and truth and mission? Can the power of God come into your life unless you're willing to be a part of that? And the resounding answer from the Bible is no. That's the Bible's answer. It's underlining the fact that you need the church. God's aim is not only to bring his supernatural power into your life to change you individually, but corporately as well. So that's reason number one for why you need the church. Here's reason number two for why you need the church. Because you are united to a communal God. You are united to a communal God. Here's what I mean by that. The Christian doctrine of God is that you have one God and three persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It means that at the very essence of who God is, is unity and diversity. Unity. He's one God. He's not many gods. He's he's one God, one substance. But there's diversity there as well. He's one God, one substance, but he's three persons. From all eternity... God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit has has been living in perfect communion and love. From all eternity, He's been in relationship with all the persons of the Trinity, communicating and communing with one another. The three persons of the Trinity have just been eternally pouring love and delight into each other until one day when they decided to create a race of beings who could participate in the love and glory they have. You see that? From all eternity, this Trinitarian God has been living in relationship to himself. One substance, three persons, eternally pouring love and care into that relationship. And now look down at verse 18. Notice that astonishing thing that Paul was saying there. You see what he's saying? Christians, through Jesus Christ, have access in one spirit to the Father. When you become a Christian, the Spirit of God comes in and unites you to what? He, of course, unites you to this triune God. When you become a Christian, you are naturally and organically connected to God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Now, what does that mean for us? Well, knowing that God is a God with love and communion flowing from his very essence, if you know a God like that, how could you possibly relate to a God who is himself a community without it automatically bringing you into Community? How can you relate to God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit who are deeply one, deeply cleaving to one another, absolutely one without you being brought into a community in which you are absolutely one? How can you know this God outside of community? It's the amazing thing about our relationship with God. We don't know Him as far off. Even in this passage, He says He's not far off to you anymore, but we get His lifeblood in a sense. That you and I as Christians have God's God's spirit within us. His lifeblood flows through us, if you want to say it that. We are engrafted to him. His spirit comes into us and indwells in us. And how can we be that vitally related to a God who is himself community without it immediately pushing us into a community? And not just kind of consumerist, consumerist uh, community where we just sort of come in on Sunday mornings and consume a sermon and that's all of our involvement in the church or we come in and we make a few friends or we come in and we like the programs or we come in from time to time and we just kind of come in and out and we consume whatever it is about the church that really tickles our fancy. Paul is saying no we need a real and deep community of love and truth and unity and mission in the world. Why? Why? Because God is like that. You can't know God without being a part of a community like that. You, you can't possibly see everything that you need to see about who God is on your own. You cannot possibly do it. You can't see the infinite, amazing God and his multifaceted Son and the communion of his Holy Spirit. You can't do that alone. You need other people who see things about Jesus that you don't see. You need other people who've walked a similar path before you. You need other people who who have come to know God in a slightly different way. Both your knowledge and their knowledge being equally true but not full. And you need to have other people that come alongside of you and you need to come alongside of them and there need to be people who've walked in faith before you and you need people who've, who've just begun their walk behind you and you all need to be sitting together and talking together and saying, what is it about this God that is so amazing? And someone will say something and someone will say something else and you put those things together and you come to understand God in a completely different way. You can't know God fully by yourself. And that's why He's given us One another. To get that in depth knowledge about God, you need to be intimately involved, deeply involved, really involved in a community of love and truth and unity and mission known as the church. I was reminded of this uh, next story from a pastor this week. C.S. Lewis was a part of a small band of writers who met regularly and were very close. His two friends were Ronald and Charles, two very exciting names, Ronald and Charles. And When Charles died, no offense to anybody who's named Ronald and Charles, offhanded comment. When Charles died, C.S. Lewis thought, "Uh, I'll get more of Ronald now. I won't have to, to share Ronald with Charles. But actually to his shock, he found when Charles died, he didn't get more of Ronald. He got less because there were only certain things in Ronald that only Charles brought out. He realized that he didn't really know Ronald without Charles. He needed Charles to help with Ronald. The more he hung out with Ronald after Charles' death, the more he realized that he didn't really know Ronald at all. It's the same way with Jesus Christ. It's the same exact thing with Jesus Christ, the eternal, multidimensional, rich Jesus Christ. There's absolutely no way I'll ever know him by myself. Only when I know lots of other Christians who all know a part of Jesus that that I probably don't or can't immediately see will I know him fully and truly. And here's the question to our lives individually. If you don't have people that you're talking with and praying with, if you don't have people, if you don't have a church where you're meeting together regularly, where you're opening up your life to them. You're giving them license to speak in. And likewise, they're doing the same thing. If you don't have that kind of real and deep fellowship with other Christians, you're actually not living the way the Bible calls us to live in Jesus Christ. You're missing it. And might I say, you're not just missing it intellectually, you're missing the fruit and the blessing that comes along with that. You're missing being united and tied to other Christians in in an almost mystical and magical kind of way where you get to see a little bit more about who Jesus is and come come to understand him more deeply. So those are the two reasons for why you need the church. Because the power of God works through his church to change you relationally and corporately and because you're united to a communal God and therefore one another. That brings us to Paul's second claim on your life. Not only do you need the church, but you also need to be involved, participating in the church. If you actually look at the first, uh, excuse me, the last part of the passage, the last three or four verses, verses nineteen through twenty-two, you'll miss it if you don't slow down a little bit. What we what we read there, but Paul uses three metaphors to describe the church, and the first metaphor he uses is that we are all fellow. Citizens. The minute you become a Christian, you're not primarily from Hendersonville anymore. Uh, I've come to know that most people aren't really from Hendersonville anyway, right? You've moved here, but your address may be here physically, but you're not primarily from Hendersonville. You're not primarily from Western North Carolina. You're not primarily from the United States. You're not primarily white or Asian or black. You're not primarily identified by labels in this world. You're primarily something else. You've been translated out of all those groups and now your membership is in the kingdom of God. You've become a citizen in a new nation, a new race, a new ethnos, a new people. You see that? You no longer are simply labeled by the world's labels. You are actually primarily labeled as a citizen of the kingdom of God. And the formative influence of this new race, this new society, this new nation has far greater influence on you and who you are than your membership and your old groups. But that's not all. You're not just citizen. Paul, citizens, Paul says. He actually goes on to say, you're members of the household of God. And that word household there does not mean a physical four-walled building. What it means is family. So now you see he's moved from simply this understanding of the metaphor of being citizens but he's moved to say look it's more intense than that you're not just members of a fam- i mean uh, citizens in a kingdom you are now members of a family that god's not only your king he's your father if you're a christian and you aren't merely citizens, you're his children his sons and daughters but then he actually goes even farther than that he gets more intense. Not only is God your king, not only is he your father, but he indwells in you. You see what he says there? In verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by spirit you now are building blocks in a temple in which god's royal presence his shekinah glory lives remember the temple in the old testament that's where god's shekinah glory was that's where he went and dwelt among his people and now he's saying look you all are, are stones in this living temple and i come and i indwell That temple. You're built together as building blocks into this temple. It moves from showing us God is king to God is father to God is indwelling us. It's saying that He's not just near us, He's not just with us, but He is in us. You see the intensity of that? Paul's just kind of brilliantly building this thing. He's saying, You need to recognize that. You need to recognize what God is doing. He's not just near you. He's not just with you, but he is in you. Think about it. A father is closer to his children than a king dwelling with his citizens. But when you come to this idea as a Christian that you are a temple, then it means God actually comes into you. He doesn't just dwell near you or with you, but he dwells in you. And think, too, about what that means for your relationship and connectedness with other Christians. It's showing us how intensely connected we are to God and to one another. A connection between citizens is a very important one. It's a, it's a social contract. We all live by a certain uh, amount of rules and regulations that keep us to be good citizens. We relate to each other with contracts and all that sort of thing. But then in family, we're related in a different way. And siblings in a much more intimate one. Genetic material and common roots and, and so on and so forth. We can look back generations in our photo albums and we can see how we're connected to them in all sorts of ways. But then, in the last illustration, we're actually cemented together. Have you ever tried to stick a piece of paper through a cemented wall? doesn't happen, does it? That's what Paul is saying. You're not just citizens who relate to each other cordially, and you shake hands and are smiling to y- with each other. It's not just like family, which, again, church can be like a family reunion, and there's all sorts of crazy people there, and it's... A, He's saying, look, you are cemented together. You are so bound to one another and connected that there's not even a silly little bit of space where you can see any light. That's your connectedness with other Christians in the church. And that's what Paul is, is drawing out for us. Now, through the years, I've had people come to me as a pastor and say, yeah, look, I understand, right? I get, I see. The need for the church. I even see the rationale for the need for the church. Uh, you know, I actually, I actually see that I ought to be involved and I see the importance of it. I even see how, you know, involved, you know, it's calling me to be. But how involved do I really need to be? You ever asked yourself that question? Yeah, I need to be involved in the church. How, how involved do I really need to be? I mean, is once a week okay? Um... Do I need to go maybe twice a week? Or maybe I haven't shown up in in two months and probably I should stick my head in and say hello and shake a few hands. How involved do I I really need to be? And really all I have to say to answer that is consider these metaphors. Consider what they mean. Can Can you possibly square only being occasionally involved in the church with this Idea of being cemented, of being siblings, of being related by blood, of being actually inhabited by God because we're cemented together. Does a haphazard and occasional involvement with the people of God square with the level of intensity in these metaphors? No way. If you're fellow citizens, if you're brothers and sisters, if you're cemented together, how involved do you need to be? Just think about that last metaphor. All those blocks around you are dependent upon you, and you're dependent upon them. You're leaning on one another, there's connectedness there. How involved do you really need to be? And you need to consider the metaphors. Does it square with the intensity? of the metaphors, your life in the church. Well, that's the first two claims that the Bible is making on our lives. You need the church, and you need to be involved in the church. But I want you to notice the third claim. When you come into the church, you need actually to lay your hostility down. Now, most of you are probably thinking right now, I don't have any hostility. I'm a good person. I'm a nice person. I like to get along with people. But if you were to really examine your heart, When you come in here, is there any one person or group of people that are here or if they were here, you would think to yourself, why are they here? Wait, what are they doing here? Do you you know how that person acts? I would never do that. You might be thinking, I don't have any obvious hostility. But listen, if there's one thing I know about the human heart, we all have hostility. That's why James is saying in his, in his letter in chapter 2, don't show favoritism and partiality. Don't, don't be prejudiced. Don't you realize that all of that comes from a prideful heart and a prideful condition? And You actually can see what he's addressing there. That very same thing in chapter 2, Paul is in verses 11 through 16, you don't really actually need to know that much about what's going on with the Jews and the Gentiles. There's talk here about circumcision and uncircumcision. Those Jews would have been circumcised as a sign of being part of the family of God. Now as they are becoming Christians, Gentiles are coming into the church and there's some squabble about whether the Gentiles now need to have the sign of circumcision. Paul laid that to rest. He says, listen, there's no circumcision or uncircumcision. We're all part. That was old. This is new. In Jesus Christ, we're one. And as they're coming in, these Jews and Gentiles, you need to kind of know a little bit about the background, and this will explain it all. In the time of the writing of the first books of the Bible, New Testament, this is what was going on. If a Jewish boy or girl fell in love, and married a Gentile, the Jewish family would hold a funeral for that child. That's how much the Jews hated the gentiles and now as some of them are becoming christians and they're coming into the church and it, this whole christianity thing is new it's challenging the jews to say wait who are these why are they coming why do i have to deal with them why do i even have to talk to them And look here's what ephesians 2 is saying when you come into the church the old distinctions those things that kept you apart those dividing walls that you put up The hostility you secretly harbor for one or a group of people, lay them down. They don't matter anymore. Put them away. And there's all sorts of things that keep us apart out there. There are all sorts of things that are dividing laws. There's all sorts of hostility. And you know them, and I know them. But what Paul is saying is that when you come in here, When you come into the family of God, lay them down. There's a new unity here. There's a new basis for unity. There's a new possibility of unity. But that's extremely tough. The question becomes, how in the world does that happen? How in the world can we lay down those hostilities we have for other people? How in the world can we live like we're being called to live here in the Scriptures? How can those barriers be brought down? How can we really become one in the church? And the answer to the question of how God causes us to be one like this, how he brings us down, brings down the dividing walls of hostility and barriers that come from this passage. There's a word in here that shows up twice. I've already mentioned it. Hostility. We already know, let's face it, we're, we, tend, we tend to be hostile people because we tend to judge ourselves based on other people. So what we're always trying to do is push down other people and lift ourselves up to say, I'm, I'm just, I'm a little better than they are. And we begin to make all of these dividing walls. We look down our nose and we push other people down so that we can feel the sense of being lifted up. Some of us, because of our background, we're hostile to this kind of person or that kind of person Actually, the old King James version of this passage translated the word for hostility as enmity or hatred. We sometimes are, are hating in our hearts of other people. and How are we going to deal with that? This text tells us that the way we deal with that is that you look to the cross. Because on the cross, look at verse 16, God killed the hostility. You see that? It says he slew the hostility. He destroyed it. He put it to death. Now, how can that be? Verse 16 is actually a profound theological statement. It says that God made Jesus the hostility. It doesn't say that God made Jesus hostile. Jesus was up there loving, but God made him the bearer of hostility. You remember that verse in 2 Corinthians? Some of you remember this. Chapter 5, verse 21. It says that God made him sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It didn't say that God made him sinful because he wasn't. It doesn't say that God made him hostile because he wasn't hostile. It said that God made Jesus hostility. It says that God made him sin, which means that God treated him legally as if he'd done all the terrible things that we've been doing to each other for centuries. We've been hurting each other. Trampling each other, racism, oppression, war, family violence, hostility, hostility, hostility. What God did was that he treated Jesus Christ as if he had done all those things that we've been doing to one another. And when he did that, when he put all of our punishment on Jesus, he slew the hostility. He's quenched hostility in two ways. First, we're told he slew the hostility between God and us. This is how he does it. Justice demands punishment for hostility and Jesus took it that's what it means in this passage with that Jesus accomplished peace for us not this emotional feeling but really having been hostile to god in our sinfulness Jesus Christ has made it possible for us to come to god and have peace with him and that's how Jesus on the first hand slew hostility he he provided a way for us to come to God, having paid for all of our sin and hostility towards God. So therefore, don't you see them, the minute you embrace Jesus Christ by faith, and this is what it means to be a Christian, your record of hostility goes to him where it's punished. His record of peace comes to us. That's why he's not just the source of peace, but he is our Peace. God sees us to be perfectly righteous in His sight. We are legally seen as a loving people, a perfect people, legally in God's sight the minute we become Christians. So He, he slays the hostility between us, sinful human beings, and God. But get this He slays the hostility that it might still exist between people in the church, too. When I see Jesus Christ slain for me because of all the things that I've done wrong, all the ways in which I've been proud, all the ways in which I've hurt people over the years, all the ways in which I've been hostile, that humbles me. It actually, it's actually pride again and self-righteousness that causes hostility. It's the reason we're ever hostile towards others. You're hostile to people when you say deep in your heart, again, I would never do that. Look, here's the deal. If the God of the universe can, through Jesus Christ, forgive all the hostility I've thrown at him through my sin, who am I as a sinful human being in desperate need of God's grace? Look at anyone else and hold hostility in my heart. Because God has looked upon me and he has said, the peace of Christ upon you. When I come in the church, I ought to be look, looking at other people who, let's be, let's be frank and honest, who may annoy us. People who may just get under our skin. People to whom we say to God, why did you bring them in here? It bother me so much. Or, we put on the face like southerners that we are, and we say, hey, how are you? Great. Yeah, me too. Meanwhile, our hearts are going, oh, get away from me. How can we live with that kind of hostility? And pride when we recognize the God of the universe has applied the peace of Christ to us. You know what we ought to be saying to one another? The peace of Christ to you. I recognize that I am a sinner in desperate need of God's grace. Who am I to hold anything over your head? And You see, that kind of community, that kind of love for one another, that kind of applying the grace of Jesus Christ in one another. That kind of tearing down of the dividing walls and the hostility. That kind of living as a counter to our own culture, which is out there saying, listen, we're better than you are. Look, we're above you and you're below us. And all sorts of scratching and clawing. When you come in here, ought not to exist. Why? It's actually not really only for your benefit. But it's actually so the world might be able to see, hey, There's a group of people that live in such a way as they seem to love one another. They seem to care for one another. What's going on in that place that's not going on in the rest of the world? And when they ask, we can say, listen, we know the peace of God. Not only do I know the peace of God individually, but I know the peace of God corporately and relationally as well that Jesus Christ has brought peace to us because he is our peace and we ought to seek to know him together. And the more you look to him, the more you're built together into a holy temple that rises up and he'll dwell in you and you with him and his beauty will pass into you. Some three strong claims. But the grace of God works in us to help build us together as his temple and live for him before a watching world let's pray father in heaven again thank you that you have brought us peace through the lord jesus christ that the hostility we had towards you and living in our sin towards you that you have forgiven us and not because of anything we've done in ourselves not because of any work before you, not because we've even tried to straighten up our lives and clean ourselves up, but solely because of your grace to us. Unmerited favor. Father, help us as we seek to live among the brethren and uh, the family here, brothers and sisters here. Help us to, to recognize that we ought to be laying down our lives, putting down the hostility living by grace, applying grace to other people, the grace of Jesus Christ. This is not easy. This is a difficult task. We are not capable of doing this in and of ourselves. But we have your promise, the promise of your spirit that is working within us individually and corporately to bring us together, to knit us together, to build us together as the temple of the Lord Jesus Christ who dwells within us. Father, we thank you for this beautiful picture of the church. We thank you for others. We thank you for our family. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.